The Monaco Grand Prix gave F1 a much needed shot in the arm in 2004 as Michael Schumacher's dominant streak with Ferrari was broken on one of the more dramatic weekends in the Principality's modern era. Schumacher was already looking unlikely to win before his race ended in bizarre circumstances and it was Renault's Jarno Trulli who got everything right to take what would be the only victory of his F1 career. Welcome to another episode of Bring Back V10s. I'm Glenn Freeman and joining me for this trip back to 2004 are the race's F1 journalists, Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. So Scott, welcome to your first appearance of the series. We know from our Jensen Button episode in the last series that you're quite keen on 2004. So when you think back to that year's Monaco Grand Prix, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Uh, I have to be honest and say the frustration of watching a race in Monaco because I was watching it through the very narrow lens of being a Button fan at the time. So all the fun and exciting and controversial stuff that many others probably very much enjoyed during this Grand Prix was just a, a distraction for me from the fact that I wanted and expected Button to win this race. Once, um, you know, when, you, when you're supporting a driver who's constantly playing sort of second second best or third best behind the two Ferraris and then they're not in the picture, you think, oh, this is it. This is finally going to be the one. Um, but unfortunately, I think this, uh, I think given this would have been the start of me being probably properly invested in F1, it probably would have been my first realisation of, oh, you really can't overtake in Monaco. Uh, so I was just sat there growing increasingly disappointed as the realisation dawned that Button was clearly quicker but had no way of overtaking. And obviously now I can look back objectively and say, brilliant race, the right result for F1, always a bit of fun. But if you want my honest first thought, it is that this race annoyed me. <laughs> I think that takes care of one of the questions we've got later on as well. But Mark, good to have you with us again. You were covering this race on site. So what's your standout memory? Catching up with Jarno in the paddock just moments after he set pole, uh, which it was his first pole. Um, but he was always absolutely magic at Monaco. And this was the first time that he'd had a car where that, you know, was feasible that that personal performance of his might trans translate to pole. And he did it. And he was absolutely buzzing and so happy. And it was a typical Yarno lap. It was so uh, committed and, and yet smooth. But towards the end of it, he did. He got a really leery oversteer through uh, Raskas. Um, but it was a typical Yarno lap up, up to that moment. And, um, yeah, catching up to him afterwards, he was just enjoying the moment, absolutely buzzing and so happy. And he, he's not a natural extrovert showman kind of guy, but he was just loving this attention, delighting in the achievement sort of thing. And he'd said, yeah, I was a little bit too much at the end. He said, but I lost a bit of time there, but I, I'd built enough earlier in the lap. And even with that, he was still on pole by about three tenths. And um, I think one of the fascinating things about Truly at Monaco was that he said, he, he, he encapsulated it once, he said, others feared failure because of the walls. And he said he, he didn't fear failure. And he thinks that, that that was a key to why he was so good around there. And I thought it was a very interesting way of looking at it. It's a good point that we'll probably come back to later in the episode, actually. It truly was not a, a one-hit wonder around Monaco in terms of top performances. But before we do get on with the rest of the episode and the rest of the weekend, remember to get your questions in for our series finale, where you can ask us anything about F1 from 1989 to 2005. 
You can submit your questions using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter by emailing BringBackV10s at the-race.com or you can leave us a question in a five-star podcast review if you think we deserve it. And if you'd like to get early access to ad-free versions of new episodes of this show, then check out the Race Members Club. To find out more about all the other benefits you get as part of the club and to sign up, head to the-race.com forward slash members club. But let's go to Monaco 2004 then. And of course, the first thing we should talk about if we're talking about this weekend is a man who wasn't even there. And that means it's time for a Jacques Villeneuve segment. I've been very well behaved so far in this series and not mentioned him too much. But this weekend did throw up a legitimate reason to discuss the great Canadian. Villeneuve was out of a drive at this stage after leaving BAR at the end of the previous year. And there were rumours doing the rounds that he was going to test for his old team, Williams. Williams was widely expected to be looking for two new drivers for 2005. We already knew that Juan Pablo Montoya was off to McLaren and it was expected that Ralph Schumacher was moving on too. Patrick Head admitted to Williams having one conversation with Villeneuve by this stage, but he said he knew nothing of a plan to test him. And when he heard about it, he'd even called up to Frank Williams's office to make sure Frank hadn't arranged a test without telling him. Ralph reckoned it was unlikely Villeneuve was on his way back to Williams. Ralph said in the build-up to the Monaco weekend, I'd be very surprised if he came back to Williams. I remember the days when Frank and Patrick just blamed him for everything and had just hated him and wanted to fire him and said he was useless. Before we get Mark's thoughts on the possibility of a Williams-Villeneuve reunion, let's hear from a popular guest here on Bring Back V10s, Jonathan Williams, who of course was very close to everything going on around his family's team in this era. So here's what Jonathan knows of any discussions with Villeneuve, why it didn't go anywhere, and what he thought of those comments from Ralph. Well, I remember my father would do this regular, on a, on a multiple daily basis, exercise, which he called pushing, when he would come out of his office and he would move around the corridors or factory floors of Grove. And that's how people would get access to him, nearly as much of his business was conducted on the move as it was behind his desk. And I remember getting into a conversation with him in 2004, when we were looking down the barrel of a new driver lineup for the 2005 season. And the conversation went something along the lines of, what do you think of Jacques in terms of him being a candidate, an option for 2005? And I said, you know me, I have got nothing but faith and praise for Jacques. And I think that he is, and I, I, and I think one of the key bottom lines is he is a world champion. And how many of those are presently on the grid, let alone on the market for 2005? And my father said, that's exactly my thought as well. He is a world champion. And that's a big, big thing. And we really should be looking at him as an option because we know him. He knows us. We've had success together. And I think it, it would be all of a sudden, it was like a lot of clarity was coming to this thought. So it certainly was pursued. So I do know for a fact that there was a, a meeting at Kidlington Airport, sort of very much one of the hubs for the Silicon Valley of UK-based Formula One team hierarchies. And at the time, Williams had uh, enough of an aviation arm that we actually had a hangar there. So we had a private sort of facility, so to speak, and there was a nice sort of like mini office, like little conference room in the corner of this hangar. 
And I know that my father, Patrick Head, and Sam Michael attended a meeting with Jack in that hangar at Kidlington Airport to talk about it. But as you say, I understand it only went as far as that one meeting. And I was getting feedback, despite the fact that my father and I had sort of uh, talked about it. My father, I guess, used me as a sounding board, as was fairly common for his driver insights back then. Uh, I can't remember my father talking to me too much about it post-meeting, but I do remember getting some on-the-day feedback from Sam Michael. And I think Sam said, I'm a bit 50-50. I think your father is enthusiastic, which, of course, was consistent with sort of my impressions of discussing it with him. But he said, I think the bottom line here is Patrick came away from the meeting fairly disinterested. And I think that probably is going to stop it in its tracks. But to say that my father and Patrick uh, blamed him for everything and wanted to fire him for a guy that for a guy that in his first two years with us won uh, won uh, eleven Grand Prix, won World Championship, and more often than not gave Michael Schumacher a few uncomfortable moments to think about. Uh, I don't think that's sort of uh, the kind of person you want to fire. It might be the kind of guy you want to give a payroll to, if any, a pay rise to, if anything. So. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't believe that, uh, that my father and Patrick, if they were here today, would actually say that, uh, well, sorry, if they were part of this discussion today, I don't think they would actually say that, uh, that they hated Jack, blamed him for everything and wanted to fire him, if that was what Ralph said. <laughs> Great stuff from Jonathan there, as always, and we'll hopefully have him back for another full episode in our next series. But Mark, looking at the deal that never was with Villeneuve, and given Williams's trajectory at this time, would a Villeneuve return for 2005 have been any good for Williams? <laughs> I think it would have been very entertaining, especially if Ralph had stayed as well. <laughs> but um, <laughs> would it have worked? I don't. I, I think probably not. In all honesty, I, I, I actually I do recall Sir Frank um, sort of just sounding out the idea um, just after after a little. Uh, chat that we'd had and um i think he was just sounding out various people about the idea um i i wasn't sure if jack still had the same stuff of 96 97 in him he was he still had the spirit but i must admit i'd begun to question whether his skills weren't beginning to dim already he last looked i thought really good in 98 his final season at williams when the car wasn't great but he often was he he did a couple of stunning qualifying laps that year putting the car third where it had no right to be but He'd not really done the equivalent at BAR, and he'd been fairly compre- comprehensively outperformed in what was his team by the the new boy Button in two thousand and three, and there could have been deeper reasons for that. But actually, I don't think there were. I think the drivers all passed their peaks at different times for a mixture of physical and psychological reasons. And I really do think he was already past his, even though he wasn't all that old. And I think looking back to history rather than creating new history probably wasn't the right place for Williams to be looking and. Ultimately, I think they came to the same conclusion, probably encouraged in that view by Patrick. So, sorry if that's a bit harsh, Glenn. <laughs> it's hard to look at the way Williams' BMW went in 2005 and to think that putting Villeneuve into that team would have made that relationship uh, end on any better terms than it did. So, uh, I don't think I was expecting anything too positive. Jack had some good drives in 2000, I think, when the BAR Honda uh, had its good days, but even I would admit that in 2001, the year where he got a couple of BAR podiums, I don't think he was quite the driver he'd been in the years before. But another 
outspoken driver, no longer on the grid by this point, had his say on Villeneuve, and that was Eddie Irvine. Eddie told Italian newspaper Gazzetta dello Sport that a Villeneuve comeback would be a good thing. Eddie added, uh, it's ridiculous that a driver like him is not in F1 while seven others should be out. I do wonder if that's lost in translation. He actually said several, but it's very specific otherwise. Uh, but he said, that's what the teams want, people with no personality. Uh, they want the cars to be the stars rather than the driver. They want to see Toyota, BMW, Jaguar flags in the grandstands. They don't understand the Ferrari phenomenon is unique and born out of the history and personality of Enzo Ferrari. So, Scott, we're in the, the peak of F1's manufacturer era at this point. We haven't yet lost Ford and Jaguar. Eddie Irvine was never shy, but did he did he have a point at the end there? Were the car manufacturers perhaps too controlling, too worried about their own image and uh, their brands being the stars? And did they overmanage, or was this the beginning of them overmanaging the PR side of the sport and not allowing the drivers to show personality? Well, well, it's no surprise that a no-nonsense free-speaking driver was there waving the flag for another no-nonsense free-speaking driver. But uh, I, I do, I do think he has a point because I think it's, um, I think it's indicative of a bigger problem that these kinds of manufacturers have, uh, and that's that very few manufacturers actually understand motorsport, and the ones that stick around are the ones that are there for the right combination of reasons, and they're not the ones that think that you can recreate the Ferrari phenomenon in, in like two or three years. Um, marketing and media benefits, they're always going to be high priority for any automotive company that wants to be an F1, especially when, especially when you're answering to a board of directors. But I think that from a boardroom perspective, that only ever gets seen as instant success. And that's judged by how many signs do we have around the track? How many VIPs have we squeezed into hospitality? And like uh, Irvine said, how many flags and caps do you see in the crowd? So I, I don't think a loudmouth, opinionated driver fits into that kind of short-term thinking. Um, I don't think those drivers are the answer longer term either, uh, but they will help a team build an image, build some kind of affection, build some kind of relationship with the fan base uh, in some way. And faceless corporate entities will never, ever achieve that. So I think Toyota and Jaguar, for example, are different but good examples of these manufacturers who want or expect instant returns on investment and they're not manufacturers who are willing to give an F1 project the time required to be an actual success, especially if you're trying to recreate something like the Ferrari effect. Uh, and obviously, in this F1 manufacturer era, I view this primarily from the outside. But I reckon it's fair to draw a parallel to my time working in Formula E when there was an influx of massive manufacturers and their first priority was to be seen, seen to be doing the right thing, seen to be doing something that... Um, gets uh, gets results in what's deemed the proper way by the decision makers who don't really get the racing side of, of things. And if success follows, then great, uh, you stick around. And if, it's, if you suck, you bail out. But at least you've done it and won as many marketing points as you can in, in the way that is considered proper by the powers that be. And I'm sure Eddie's Jaguar dig would have been at their, you know, their master plan to to turn Silverstone, for example, awash with green flags and caps, like you mentioned there. And uh, I think Irvine was probably right. There was a lack of understanding that the reason F1's Italian races were full of red flags for Ferrari was because of history, not because you just turn up and try and do a branding exercise. But let's go back to Williams 
And Patrick Head was pretty open about the team's interest in Mark Webber. Webber was in his second season with Jaguar, and it was known that the third year of his deal required the team to hit some performance targets, which appeared unlikely at this stage. However, Webber was also contracted to Flavio Briatore, so it was considered a possibility that he could end up going to Renault for 2005. Patrick said, I don't know him that well, but he's quite clearly, uh, quite clearly he's very capable and has a very cool head on his shoulders. He appears to have the makeup of a driver we'd be interested in. Patrick also offered his theory on why Williams was set to lose both of its drivers. He said, we would have been happy had we stayed with the same two drivers. Frank is very strong about not discussing private matters in public, but obviously a driver's aspirations for their salaries and our willingness to meet those aspirations didn't work. So basically, as always with Williams, the drivers wanted more money than the team was willing to pay. Mark, this time we're looking at a partnership that Williams explored that did come off. At this point, Weber and Williams, did that seem like a match made in heaven? It did seem like it, yeah. William, Williams was... Um... Seemed like a good fit. Mark was at a stage in his career, an early stage in his career, with a person with promise, where he just needed the the good car. He wasn't going to be making any big financial demands, and he was going to be so motivated. And that sort of energy is is really it seemed to be what Williams would um, very much have benefited from, rather than having two existing you know superstars that they wanted to be paid accordingly as well. Just just the dynamics between. Team and driver would it seemed on on paper to to make Weber a much better fit than what they had at the time, um, but there was a problem with personal dynamics between the management and any driver who went there. As it turned out, it was a it was a tricky time in Williams's history as it was beginning to be left behind in its structure and its ways of operating. And I think there was a lack of recognition of that, and the the drivers, whoever they were, ended up taking the brunt as Mark subsequently did. Um, do a little interesting sideline about the um, whether he's, he was going to be able to to accept a Williams contract because he's, he he had a a clause in the Jaguar in his Jaguar contract which potentially uh, obliged him to stay there uh, if he'd got a certain number of points by a certain date and at the Canadian Grand Prix I, th- I think it was going to be the the um, the Monday after the Canadian Grand Prix, when that deadline was, he was only a couple of points away going into that weekend of this uh, number of points that would have obliged him to stay. And it was at the time of single lap qualifying, and he'd been sixth, seventh quickest in the practices, and it was looking quite feasible he might start on the third row. And it was going to be, you know, more, more than feasible that he was going to um, trigger that clause by the look of it. Um, but in single lap qualifying, he did this horrendous lockup into the uh, into the hairpin, and that ruined his, his lap, of course. And um, he qualified about I don't know seventeenth or something. So it was much more difficult to get points from there. And I've never I've never taken up the issue with him. <laughs> I've never actually said was that deliberate, but it sure looked suspicious, especially for someone who was usually pretty good in the one lap yeah. format as well. Um, yeah, interesting. We'll have to <laughs> we'll have to find a way to put that to Mark. Sometime, but we'll keep the Williams theme going at this point because another bizarre story emerged around the team in Monaco where Ralph Schumacher accused Patrick Head of criticizing him as an unnamed team source in the German press. There was a senior Williams figure quoted in the story in Autobild in Germany 
claiming that Ralph was still suffering with the after effects of the concussion he sustained in a testing crash in, at Monza in 2003, which forced him to miss that year's Italian Grand Prix. Ralph was asked about the story and immediately said in response, it was Patrick, and if he would have the kindness to show and to explain it, then it would be good, not just spread a rumour for no reason. To me, it's nonsense, nothing else. There is no relationship problem, it's just with Patrick, sometimes he just goes off uh, with himself a bit and doesn't think about what he's saying or he's very emotional about things. Patrick is sometimes looking for something that happened 20 years ago. He's a very motivated guy, still tries everything to give us a winning car, and I enjoy working with him. 90% of the time we get on well. Head got asked about this later in the weekend, and in his own classic style, he took it on the chin. He said the quotes came from an off-the-record conversation with four British journalists at a sponsor event at the Spanish Grand Prix. He'd cited big accidents for former Williams drivers Nelson Piquet and Thierry Bootsen, saying it took them six to nine months to fully recover. So he speculated that maybe Ralph was going through the same thing. Obviously, the fact it was said to the British press doesn't quite explain how it ended up in a German publication, but Patrick said it shows that talking off the record is unwise. So Scott, looking at the PK example, Nelson has admitted he was never the same driver again after his big Imola crash in 1987. And these days... Even compared to 2004, we and the world understand a lot more about concussions and the after effects. So could Patrick have been right that Ralph might have been affected more seriously than we realised at the time? Uh, he absolutely could have been. It, it does happen. You can have concussion symptoms for, for over a year. Uh, it's, just, it's just very uncommon. Uh, concussion symptoms usually, la uh, usually pass within a couple of weeks. Uh, but in some cases, they do they do linger uh, for for a bit longer. Most are sort of settled within a few months. Uh, but it and it is uncommon to go much beyond that. But it doesn't mean it it, it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Um, I guess the likeliest possibility really was an impact on confidence or or motivation. Uh, only Ralph could really give you the answer honestly. But I doubt he'd ever do that because even now his ego seems like it's quite large and uh, mm -hmm. as you've literally just uh, pointed out in reading some of his quotes at the time he certainly wasn't one to um to uh, i would say embrace his own own weaknesses um but it is absolutely the sort of thing that can um can just sort of fester and especially as it is something that does have such uh, an unconscious impact on a driver, there's a very good chance that even, even the person themselves who is suffering from these consequences wouldn't necessarily know about it. I would argue, as I sort of mentioned about confidence or motivation, I think if there was some kind of you know mental problem going on inside the head that was causing Ralph any issues, I think it was probably just down to character or personality more, more than anything. I don't think he ever really, through his career, showed the sort of... Uh, mental resilience or consistency to be absolutely at the top of his game all the time but I might just be doing him a bit of a disservice I'd say and I think the main thing is that you definitely wouldn't want to you wouldn't want to dismiss the possibility of concussion as you know just a bonk on the head or or something like that but this far on it would at least be very unlikely that that was causing knock-on impacts but it's possible yeah I would say that um that the 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 PK example that Patrick cited, it turned out that that wasn't concussion. It was something much more serious and that um, it had caused a, a brain injury that 
led to not being able to have the same depth perception in his eye. So he, he was never able to um, judge the breaking uh, as, as finely as before the accident. So that, that wasn't a concussion. And that was something much longer lasting um, and which he still has. Uh, in, in the case of Ralph, it may, it may have been, um, but he, Ralph, I, I'd, I'd actually defend him a bit more than Scott did. He was um, on his day very, very quick, really quick. And when they got that Williams sorted in 2003 and it was properly balanced, even Montoya would tell you there's no way I could drive that car as quickly as Ralph. It, he, he was amazingly fast over one lap when the car was exactly right from, but it was a tiny, tiny sort of, you know, a very sharp V that he that he sat upon in terms of how the, the, how the car had to be for him to uh, to come up with that sort of performance. And if it fell off that uh, those traits, he, he sometimes was very un, unimpressive. But he he was. Subsequently, pretty quick at Toyota as well, um, but again, it, it, that you know he, he wasn't able to drive the car fast in all conditions and all um, circumstances. But uh, whether he whether he'd um, suffered from from the bang in the head, I don't know. But he he certainly wasn't as impressive in two thousand and four. But neither was the Williams, as it had been in two thousand and three. So it's it's difficult to make a call on it, really. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll give that that Williams uh, that year's Williams its own episode in the future. Plenty to get into there. I have to say, Mark, that when I saw you raise your hand while Scott was talking, I was hoping you were going to confess to being one of the British journalists that leaked the story to the German press. <laughs> no, I know which I know which um, I know which dinner he was talking about, and uh, yeah, Patrick had got a few glasses of wine down him, and he was um, quite you know voluble. <laughs> but who 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 relayed that story to to the German press? I have no idea. It certainly wasn't me. Glenn, do you know what the byline was on the German story? It wasn't something like Marx and Husenmeyer, was it? Yeah, <laughs> I'll have to go back and check. <laughs> Elsewhere in the driver market, speculation was building around David Coulthard's future. It had been known since the off season that DC was losing his McLaren drive to Montoya for two thousand and five. Amusingly, while Coulthard was told a long time in advance of any announcement coming out about that, McLaren chose to announce the Montoya news while he was on holiday with team boss Ron Dennis on a boat. So they were in each other's pockets and DC feels to this day that that was a strange choice of timing from the team. In Monaco 2004, Coulthard said uh, he was positive about his options for the future. But in truth, things were a bit tougher behind the scenes. Coulthard said in his first book titled It Is What It Is, there were initially no obvious opportunities. I was prepared to go on test drives or anything to stay part of the process, not because I didn't want to let go, but because I believed I still had something to offer. I spoke with Ferrari about a possible test drive, for example. Some teams were very respectful about me and declined with grace due to various circumstances. Toyota was not one of those teams. They were approached and were totally dismissive. There was pure arrogance from their management who believed they had the best two drivers in the world, which I would suggest no one else in the paddock agreed with. So Scott, Toyota had Cristiano D'Amata and Olivier Panis at this stage, although for 2005 they'd end up with Jarno Trulli and Ralph Schumacher. Should they have been a bit more willing to entertain the idea of a driver like David Coulthard? Um, if we take... 
Coulthard's version of events to be completely accurate, then 100% they should have been more willing than, than they were. But the problem with this question is that it pits me, with the benefit of hindsight, against Toyota, who'd have been working with recency bias, when I guess it would have been fairer to believe, you know, DC past his peak, is he washed up? Is he going to offer you anything? Is he just going to be a short-term solution? Um, but I think my hindsight is winning this debate in my head mentally because it ties with what I was saying earlier about manufacturers having short-term thinking and only viewing things through a narrow prism. So what were the was the lineup that they eventually moved for uh, with Trulli and, and, and Schumacher, I, I think definitely an upgrade on what they had uh, before. Were they better bets for on-track results than having DC as part of that lineup? Yeah, maybe. Um, uh, Mark said earlier that, that Ralph was obviously capable of being extremely quick in with the Toyota. But unless they truly believe DC was completely washed up, I don't think you could say with certainty that he was a worse option. On that, And that's on track. Because as Red Bull would find out, Coulthard could offer a lot more, an awful lot more, than qualifying and race performances 17 or 18 times a year. And clearly his peaks were still very good. So again, in hindsight, I do think Toyota should have entertained one of those two that they would eventually pick and Coulthard. But <laughs> referencing a previous point and the previous section we talked about, Ralph is also a slightly odd and divisive character and, and maybe not the sort to drive a major new project longer term. So I, I am surprised by DC's version of events that he was uh, dismissed so emphatically and, and so quickly. You know, he was trying to do the professional and responsible thing by having his representatives reach out to every realistic option. And I don't think that was necessarily reciprocated on the other side, because if a driver of DC's reputation, success and experience is on the table and you're uh, an underperforming major manufacturer project, you've got to look at him as an option, surely. Agreed. And we won't get into how Coulthard ended up signing for Red Bull, as that happened much later in the year. But it is worth saying that before Red Bull bought Jaguar, he had been talking to Jaguar as well. Elsewhere in the world of McLaren around this time, Adrian Newey revealed that the B-spec design of the team's awful 2004 car was almost ready to start testing. This was, of course, the year of the disastrous MP419 which, as you might remember from our MP418 episode back in Series 1, was just the unraced 2003 car with a new name, in the words of Adrian Newey. Newey had been outvoted at McLaren over his desire to fully redesign the MP418, with Martin Whitmarsh chairing a meeting in which Paddy Lowe and Pat Fry led the calls for the team to just work on making the original 18 reliable. Newey felt the car's problems could only be fixed by producing a new car, that would allow for the chassis and side pod shape to be changed to tackle the aerodynamic instability that made the MP418 so difficult to drive. And he only got his wish once the season started so badly and Ron Dennis realised McLaren were in big trouble. So Scott, we briefly mentioned that story of Newey being outvoted at the end of our MP418 episode. We didn't get into it in too much detail. Just quickly... Again, looking back, well, not even looking back with hindsight, just looking back with what we knew about Adrian Newey at the time, how big a mistake was it for McLaren to overrule its genius designer by taking a decision by committee on this? Yeah, it is hard to argue against Newey, um, I would imagine, that when he's got the weakest argument at his disposal because Adrian Newey. So surely, you know, he just commands the benefit of the doubt at all times. But when he's talking about 
significant lap time benefits on simulations. And he's so convinced that that you've got uh, major modifications required to actually get this working. Surely the whole point of having someone like him and having him in the position of technical director is you you you, you follow him on this. So Nui said uh, that it was um, uh, this decision by committee, he said it was to his horror that Whitmarsh asked for a show of hands and Nui felt that it was a rigged result, that Whit Whitmarsh knew it was going to go against Nui and he felt it was unfair to put certain people in a position where they did have to side. But most importantly, he felt that his position as technical director was completely undermined by, by this. So essentially, McLaren's created a massive rift for the sake of racing a 2004 car its technical director doesn't believe in. And lo and behold, turns out to be uncompetitive and bad handling. Um, and when you consider that later on, Nui's talking about having underlying shortcomings within the company and there's obviously reliability problems going on. He's saying that they're not going to be short-term fixes. He's saying that McLaren's not going to be able to have an overall package that's the benchmark until 2006, maybe not even 2005. So what have you got to lose by going all in where, by comparison, you go against your superstar technical director, you create this, this fundamental rift in the relationship, especially as later on, Nui would remain adamant that McLaren could actually have had a decent season if they'd just produced the car he wanted in the first place. So um, I, and, and unless this was about punishing Nui and he's re referenced it being maybe, you know, revenge for, by Ron for, for Jaguar Gate, I think you're risking an awful lot for, I don't see what you would have perceived to be the benefits at the time. And ultimately, this, I think, was one of the key episodes that led Newey to consider a future elsewhere and pushed him towards what became Red Bull. But speaking about the B-spec car in Monaco, Newey said, in terms of lap time benefit, the simulation says it should be significant. Virtually all the mechanical parts are the same, but from the bodywork perspective, it's heavily updated, and that involves some changes to the monocoque shape. Most of these things, when you have problems, tend to go back to the structure and management of the company. The, the problems have been recognized. There have been some large changes made, and I think they are very good changes, but these things that take time. Mark, there's enough stories in McLaren's 2004 to definitely have its own episode in the future, but just quickly, how bad was McLaren's season up to this point, and how bad was the need for this B-spec car to be ready as soon as possible? Oh, they needed it quite badly. The, the original MP419 was a, a mediocre car, uh, aerodynamic limitations designed into the car's tub shape, which is the, what you, the, you were referencing just before. Newey uh, realised this, deeply frustrated at being overruled and being micromanaged. It, it set up a real resentment within him about McLaren, which ultimately led to his departure. And McLaren under Ron Dennis just couldn't comfortably incorporate genius into its operating. You have had um, creative geniuses there you know, in partnership with, with Ron, you've had John Bernard, you had Gordon Murray, subsequently Adrian. These are creative people. They're not there to be uh, put in uh, a box and made to serve a, a predefined role. These are people sparking with ideas all the time. And and it was a failing of McLaren era, Ron, of Ron Dennis era of McLaren, I think, that it, it just couldn't comfortably incorporate genius into its operating and I, I really do think that was a failure, a structural failure of the team. Um, and yeah, if it, it, Newey had been given his head, they've had a competitive car from the beginning of 2004. 
And as it was, uh, Caesar was pretty much lost by the time he got his way. Um, that said, there were times when Adrian uh, Adrian's striving was so technically aggressive that um, it was sometimes led to the, the, the cars being unreliable or uh, he, he got he got Mercedes one year to make a, an engine with such a low crankshaft height that it, the, the vibrations meant made it unreliable um, they, things like that so there was a feeling that he he needed to be sort of uh, channeled a little bit but it, it was way too heavy-handed and just yeah it set up this resentment that led him to leave. The future of F1 was a huge topic of discussion over this weekend. Big meetings were taking place at the time about F1's future rules packages and what could be done when the current Concord agreement between F1, the FIA and the teams was up at the end of 2007. FIA President Max Mosey was pushing for cost control, wanting to introduce cheaper engines and opening up avenues for customer cars and more standard parts. We'll start by looking at the engine side of things. Uh, Mosley wanted engines to be affordable for customer teams to buy, and he was waiting on the manufacturers to come back to him with a proposal. The most likely outcomes were either a switch to smaller V8 engines, which we know happened for 2006, or longer life versions of the V10s, so teams didn't need so many per season. Mosley held a press conference at Monaco, and on the engines he said, if we want Formula 1 to survive in its present form, it's essential that there are inexpensive engines available for the teams which do not have a manufacturer to supply them. And the whole strategy is to get the cost of those engines down. There is nothing anyone can do to reduce the cost of an engine research program. They can spend what they like. But I'm very optimistic that we will see a substantial reduction in the cost of these engines. BMW boss Mario Tyson spoke about the situation on the Williams website, saying BMW was pushing for a continuation of the V10s as that would be cheaper than designing new V8s. Tyson reckoned that by extending the life of the engines to three race weekends and reducing testing, the cost of producing engines could be halved, and in Mario's words, without losing the fascination of the 10-cylinder engine. If only he'd got his way. Uh, Mark, I appreciate that uh, if the V10s had stuck around, we'd have an even longer era to cover on this podcast, but... Why do you think F1 didn't just carry on with the engines it already had and just make them a bit cheaper and extend their, their life? There are a number of agendas going on. Um, they were trying to do two things, maybe even three things with the new formula. Primarily, it was about escalating lap speeds and circuit safety. So they believed that there was, there was that element to it. So they believed that if they chuck a, a big chunk of capacity, um, go three, uh, down to 2.4, it would buy them some time for the escalation to catch back up. Um, but at the same time, they wanted to standardize more design hard points like bore size, crankshaft height, etc. So for two reasons, that, that cut down on areas of gain that a massive R&D budget would find you, but also it would make it much more feasible if they wanted to uh, encourage independent engine supplies in. And that was very much behind um, what Max and Bernie at the time were were, were thinking they were, they were trying to reduce the power of the manufacturers all the time. It was a constant battle, and a, a, a valuable way of doing that would have been to have a a, a, a Cosworth or whoever Ilmore be able to provide a you know a competitive independent engine, and if you limited the areas of expenditure in terms of research 
budget um that that was a much more feasible thing to do so really it was if you kept the existing v10s all they were all different they had different bore size crankshaft heights all those things so you couldn't standardize it if you'd kept those and also they it wouldn't have met the objective of, of you know um reducing the speed significantly by the time mosley spoke about his ideas for the future including opening up the rules to allow customer cars Iconic designers Adrian Newey and Patrick Head had already made clear they weren't fans of that idea. Newey called it a dangerous route because, and he said, midfield teams will end up either being forced out of existence or buying other people's cars and designs. Very quickly, you'll get into a position where you've got three or four teams able to design their own cars with the rest buying. You'll end up with an IndyCar scenario and that would be very sad for F1. Patrick Head said he hoped a middle ground could be agreed on because he wasn't desperately excited about F1 being taken back to F3000. Mosley jokes that Newey clearly hadn't thought it through properly because perhaps he was a bit busy trying to make the McLaren work at the moment. Max went on to explain that he wanted teams on the junior ladder and he name-checked Carlin and Arden to get their start in F1 by buying a chassis, then starting to modify it before eventually moving into building their own cars. Max said, it gives people a route in because at the moment you have to go from zero to a full competitive F1 chassis with all the research and development that implies and it's just not possible for anyone except a big car company. We need the new blood from the independent teams because in the end, the independent teams are the lifeblood of Formula One. This current zero to complete F1 team status is virtually impossible. He also suggested that F1 could set rules around how long new teams could be pure customers and when they would have to start designing their own chassis. So, Scott, what did you think? What do you think about customer cars? And was there a place for this in F1 if it had been handled as Mosley had outlined? I I think it's the sort of thing that if you're not one of the bigger teams that risks being undermined by someone spending a considerable amount less than you, by buying something good that someone else has paid a fortune to design and then beating you, um, I think you can look at it quite positively because it just sort of the it's one of those ideas that on paper creates a world in which there are a lot more competitive teams and cars. Therefore, the drivers have got more evenly matched machinery, and that we just have closer racing. Where it falls down, as these ideas often do, is in the detail. And Mark was mentioning earlier that there are all sorts of agendas going around the place at the moment, and Personally, I find it very difficult to look on this as anything other than trying to wean off the dependence and power of the manufacturer teams because manufacturer teams always come and go in Formula One, but there are often a core group of manufacturers, either on the team side, engine side or both, that just stick around longer. They're a more constant part of the fabric and framework and therefore they have more to say. So the bit that I don't buy into is that some of these teams would come in and then they'd gradually start doing things on their own. And I think that if they did something like Mosley suggested, where you have a a timeline for when they have to do their own thing, I think all you do then is slap an expiration date on these teams' existence. Because when he says things like, uh, you know, if you take teams like Arden or Carlin, they're not coming into Formula One to buy a chassis and run around in the back half of the field. They're coming because they want to end up where Williams and McLaren and BAR are. And he, the idea being that, yeah, the, the chassis will be the jump-off point. They'll get great drivers, throw them in. They'll run the team well. And then they'll just 
want more and more and they'll chip away at it. That sounds lovely and easy, doesn't it? How's that gone for Haas in the last few years? <laughs> I know that it's not an exact scenario that you can compare it to, but the idea that people wouldn't settle for being a satellite team is totally unrealistic. There are always going to be different allegiances. There are always going to be different objectives. And if you've got an opportunity to get a team into Formula One where you can operate at a pretty low cost, you can earn some money by being the, you know, uh, a second team to a big manufacturer, you can take some money for running their junior drivers, you can get some sponsors on board because you're a cheap team that's easy to get nice fancy VIP passes and stickers space on the side of the car for. That's a pretty good existence and it must be better than attempting every year to scramble budgets for whatever the, the leading two or three junior single-seater categories are. So I completely disagree. I think uh, if if a team like, and we'll use the examples he gave, Arden or Carlin, were offered the opportunity to be middling Formula One teams for 10 or 15 years and reap all the benefits you get from that, I think they'd take that. If they, I, And I know that the competitive instinct would want them to to be more, to become more, motorsport isn't just a place where you all you just follow your dreams and you do everything you want to do there are massive business implications at the heart of it surely you those teams that are small in that and in that position they just make the team that's best for their for their future at least the sensible ones do otherwise as i said you just end up in a situation where you're slapping expiration dates on these teams because you'd have um confident ambitious teams come in do what mosley said and then eventually i'm pretty sure that all they do is bite off more than they can chew a slightly more immediate problem for F1 to tackle was its qualifying format. The single lap format that had been had been tweaked slightly for 2004, with the first session that took place on a Friday in 2003 being moved to just before the main session for 2004. Mosley admitted the new format was not interesting, and he said if we had unanimity, we could change it tomorrow, but he wasn't expecting that to happen. He said he would prefer to go back to the full one-hour format we had until the end of 2002, but he added, the one thing that we say is that it must be simple. It must be something that can be readily explained, otherwise it is just a waste of time. People lose interest. It's too complicated. So we're waiting to see if the teams come up with something unanimous. Mark, what did you make of, of the change for 2004 and putting both those sessions effectively together on the Saturday? Because you were... Well, I'm being presumptuous. You were unfortunate enough to have to cover it. It didn't really make much difference. It, it was a pre-qualifying session, which you know, determined the running order for the the, the proper session. Um, <clears throat> your, your place in that running order had an occasionally disproportionate swing. That happened on this particular weekend at Monaco, actually, um, because just of the way that the track grip ramped up. Uh, so... Because he'd won the previous race, Schumacher was first in the running order of pre-qualifying, so meaning that everybody got a faster track than him. Um, normally, he and the Ferrari were so much faster that that didn't really matter. But around Monaco, which didn't favour the Bridgestones on the Ferrari, he couldn't afford to give that time away. And that tweak of time and putting the session on on the Saturday rather than the Friday didn't really come into it. There were much more significant um, factors around how that system worked than than what day it was on and part of the reason for all these changes in the first place was to try to upset the dominance of schumacher and ferrari but in 2004 up to this point ferrari had been more dominant than ever 
Mosley addressed this in Monaco, but he disagreed with suggestions that it was damaging for F1 to have such a dominant champion. Mosley said, I don't think Michael's domination has hurt the sport because this happens in many sports. You get a supremely gifted performer in the right team and they win everything. Even in sports where the man is on his own, like heavyweight boxing, you get eras where there is just nobody who can challenge that person for a number of years. And I think that is part of sport. When people do a brilliant job, they deserve to be successful. I think what hurts Formula One is the fact that even down the field, the actual racing is often not as good as we would like. We need to change the cars, then we will get better racing. Well, that sounds familiar. But Scott, looking at uh, the dominance of Schumacher and Ferrari, he'd won the first five races of the season by this point. Was that bad for F1? I think I think it had been because the the manner of the wins had often been you know so significant, and a couple of those races at least had been by around half a minute, which is quite significant and I guess even when you'd gone through the dominance of something like 2002 at least sort of I guess in the first part of the season there's just enough of a hint of a Williams BMW threat that you're kind of hoping that that's going to play out whereas I and again <laughs> looking back with hindsight it might be clouding this judgment but I think by the time we've got to Monaco um, everyone can see how this championship is playing out we've seen it already a couple of times in the last three years, 2001 and especially 2002, that Schumacher just gradually gets further and further ahead. The car looks like it's not the, it's not got a match. And crucially as well, there isn't an established second force. The, the BAR and Button are obviously emerging as a very good combination, but, you know, the uh, McLaren have gone missing and Williams are a bit random and Renault's sort of there, but then sometimes it isn't. So, it's just kind of like, well, where's the threat going to come from? So I, I think it was this combination of, um, oh, here we go again, yet another Ferrari dominance, and also just no hint of when it's going to end. And the point that Mosley makes about, oh, racing further down the field, I understand that, but I actually think the more relevant thing is something that we had in 2020, for example, which is if you lose the title narrative, if you don't have that hope of that dominant force being toppled in the championship you have to rely on individual race by race narratives and the problem that you would have in this ferrari era is that that often wouldn't that that narrative would be exactly the same as the championship narrative which is that ferrari and usually schumacher are, are winning at a canter so i think it was i think it was bad for f1 i do take the point that it happens in a lot of other sports but i just feel like in in all those other sports, when you have that straight fight head to head, whether it's you know a boxing match or a tennis contest, or you've got two football teams up against each other, an underdog versus a team with crazy backing and megastar signings, there is always just that it's that human versus human element, and it's like, well, it is on the day, it is a straight fight, and that happens so rarely in F1 that when you have this kind of dominance, there's no reason for you to think it's going to do anything but continue. Ferrari wasn't dominant in Monaco, at least as Mark has hinted at already. The team came into the weekend with a dilemma over tyres as it was considering running a super soft Bridgestone compound to qualify at the front rather than choose a more race suitable tyre but be buried in the pack and unable to use its pace. However, as Mark referenced, in first qualifying Schumacher was down in 14th, 1.4 seconds off the pace set by Ralphs Williams and Barrichello was only 11th in the other Ferrari. Schumacher was then fifth fastest in second qualifying with Barrichello seventh. 
and they both moved up a place because Ralph, who had qualified on the front row, had a 10-place penalty for an engine change. Jano Trilli took pole, as we've already mentioned, and Jensen Button's BAR was bumped up to second, with Fernando Alonso in the second Renault, sharing row two with Schumacher. Ross Braun said after qualifying there was a strong chance Ferrari would suffer its first defeat of 2004 in the race, and he said the team's best hope was if the leading cars were all stuck together in a pack, then maybe Ferrari could do something with strategy to get ahead. So Mark, looking at Ferrari finally not being on on the top of the pile, was it just the qualifying running order thing that you mentioned earlier, or was there something else that didn't click for Ferrari this weekend? Uh, there's something else as well, as we touched on before, the, the Bridgestone wasn't at its best on slow braking acceleration acceleration type corners that was michelin territory the michelin had way better traction because its sidewalls would sort of pucker up and catapult you out almost like a dragster tire whereas the stiffer bridgestone would just want a wheel spin so the bridgestone strength was in fast corners like long fast corners it was really good where that that strength of construction really paid off so monaco was always going to be the least competitive track of the season for ferrari as all the other competitive cars were on michelins um but to combat that Ferrari had a plan, and it's the, the, the soft compound that you, you you talked about. The Bridgestone had done them this really soft compound. It would be hopeless after a few laps, but it would be fast and qualifying, and that's all you really need at Monaco. So long as Barrichello could get between Schumacher and the pack, and then hold the pack, you know, so he didn't need to overstress his tyres, which meant that locking out the front row realistically, because even if Michael got pole, but there was a Renault alongside him that Renault could possibly still accelerate the Ferrari because of its Michelins, and then that, that would be game over for Ferrari's race. Um, so throughout the practices, Ferrari was working with his tyre and trying to get Barrichello up to speed with it. He just couldn't get there. He was always a couple of tenths shy, two or three tenths shy of Michael, and Ferrari feared that into that gap there would be a Renault and or maybe two Renaults, and then, then the race would be history. So Ferrari had to give up on that plan partway through the weekend and instead they went the other way they, um, they went with the standard harder compound which they knew didn't have a pole lap in it but they decided to because of that they would fuel long they would this was in the days of where you had to um you put the your your first in race fuel in um for qualifying so if you wanted to run light you were going to have to compromise your race strategy and if you want to run long you're going to have to compromise your qualifying so they did that and they hoped to qualify near enough the front and then be able to overcut past everyone as they all came in. That was that was the plan. Um, but the other factor was the, the, the pre-qualifying single lap qualifying system. That that did hurt your Monaco if you'd won the last race, which Schumacher had, because the track ramp up at a, a Monaco had been a street circuit is massive. So Schumacher was first out in qualifying, way less grip than everyone else, track about a second slower than it would become. Put him 14th pre-qualifying, meant he fell a rubbish slot in qualifying itself with 13 cars getting a more rubber in track. Those two things combined put him in that um, grid position that you said, fifth to later um, bumped up to fourth. Six tenths off Trulli's pull. Um, that was actually pretty damn impressive uh, given the, the triple penalty of the tyres, the track and the fuel load. He had eight laps more fuel than Button. Two laps more than Trulli, one lap more than Alonso. And Barrichello with six laps lesser fuel than Schumacher was two tenths slower and back in six and seven or seventh promoted to six. So although they were at their least competitive form of the season in qualifying, there absolutely still was a possible route to victory for Schumacher here. It, it was going in, it was between him and the Renaults. Um, Button looked like he might be in the frame, but I, it, it became 
clear what the how how he achieved that front row um, qualifying position when he came in very early. So it was, it was a very much a fuel assisted qualifying lap. So he he ceased to be a factor in in, 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 in had the race not um, developed into a, saf- a safety car fest and brought Button back into it. Um, it was just gonna it was a straight. Uh, it was going to be a straight slog out between the two Renaults and Schumacher. And Schumacher got another rude awakening at the start of the race, as when within moments of the lights going out, Takuma Sato leapt from seventh on the grid to run fourth at turn one, brushing Schumacher's right front tyre as they left the grid. Uh, but Sato wasn't particularly quick, and his Honda engine was smoking throughout the first couple of laps. It finally let go on lap three at Tabak, creating a complete smokescreen across the circuit pretty much everybody slowed down but Giancarlo Fisichella's Sauber emerged from the smoke upside down and came to rest against the barrier having gone over the top of Coulthard's McLaren Fisichella was okay but Coulthard in particular was worried for him and angry that angry with BAR for not calling Sato in when the car started smoking Coulthard said smoke was coming from Sato's car already on the parade lap so I'm sure the engineers could have seen on the telemetry that eventually the engine would blow up. Our team retired Kimi when they knew he had an engine problem because it was just too risky to allow a car to run and blow up on the track. If the Honda engineers knew their engine was experiencing difficulties, it's the only professional thing to do. Lots of drivers in the queue behind Sato said they were all sat there just waiting for it to blow up because they'd seen how much it was smoking in those early laps. Scott, what did you make of this of this mess? And should BAR have called Sato in, but perhaps should Fisichella have also been more careful because everybody else in front of him pretty much came to a stop because they couldn't see? Yeah, it's both. Um, and it's actually an unforgivable situation given, um, the, I think, the scariest thing about that, when you watch back the, the, the footage and you see just this cloud of smoke and then, yeah, you suddenly see this upside down uh, Sauber appear is that you can see that maybe they were a bit premature to jump on the scene, but you can already see that there are a couple of marshals on the right-hand side of the track, pretty much where or just before where the Sauber ends up. They're already moving either sort of two on, to, like to the barrier. Basically, they're exposed. I'm not going to say that they jumped onto the track, obviously. But the, the, but they were exposed because that's the nature of working trackside. I think as part of the recovery team at a track like Monaco. Um, so the re- and the reason that's particularly unforgivable is, from, and on both sides is you've got wisps of smoke much earlier on. It's pretty clear where we're going. This is an era where spectacular engine failures are still very much spectacular. It's very I I, I find it quite amusing these days when we see engines go up in plumes of smoke because it just doesn't really happen um, anymore and linked to that is the fact that when you had an engine problem in those days come like it was pretty much terminal it wasn't like oh okay you're gonna lap a couple of laps with um you know reduced electrical power output or something like that oh, we, we've got to try and get the 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 mg uk back working again you know engine dies you're it that's it your race is over and this is a circuit with no room for error um, look at how quickly Sato comes to a stop when the engine finally gives up. You know, it's a it's a matter of meters. It isn't, oh, the engine goes up in absolute plumes of smoke and he carries on for three or four corners. So you have this combination of factors where it's inevitable what's coming. 
you have a, a failure so spectacular that you know it's going to cause a massive problem for the cars behind and you're on a circuit with no room for error with people very close to the proximity of the circuit. So the consequences of this exact thing happening can be quite dramatic. I actually think it's a sort of accident that F1's really lucky didn't have grimmer consequences for. Um, so I think the first prior, the first order of responsibility absolutely lies with the team. But I, And I understand why the competitive kind of instinct and the hope that it's not going to be as bad as it looks, I understand why that kicks in. I can't. Um, I can't see a scenario whereby it doesn't show on the data that this is, or something, or, or either on the data or just through sheer experience, what you're seeing on TV isn't a warning of a massive explosion coming. So yeah, I don't think Sato should have been in the position where he can create that kind of problem. But equally, Thyssenkella needs to be going through there much more carefully. The last thing you do when you're blind on any circuit is plow in and I'm not saying that Fisichella went into the corner at full speed but as you pointed out Glenn it's pretty clear that others came to a much bigger stop and were able to avoid this Fisichella didn't so he does have to take some responsibility for it but as I said at the beginning it's just it's one of those that's regrettable but mostly is unforgivable because it could it could have just been so easily avoided at the front of the field Alonso had jumped button at the start and the Renaults were nicely in control of the race with Trulli still in the lead the next big accident in a, on a crazy afternoon in Monaco came on lap 42 when Alonso crashed in the tunnel while lapping Ralph Schumacher. Alonso was furious about this and you can even see him gesticulating at Ralph while he's still having the accident, which I kind of admire. Alonso said Ralph pulled to the inside of the tunnel to let him through, then accelerated again, forcing Fernando wide into the barrier. He called for Ralph's license to be taken away for three to four races. Ralph wasn't impressed, saying, It's not my fault. I just wanted to let him by in the tunnel. Anyone who looks at the video will see that I went to the inside and I stayed there. There was one and a half cars between us, uh, in terms of width, not actual cars. So I don't see how I pushed him anywhere. He was just too late when he decided to pass me. He was going pretty fast and he was pretty far to the outside. So I don't know what he's complaining about. He should just calm down. If he took more care, then he wouldn't end up in the barrier. Obviously, he is frustrated and he tries to blame someone else. Alonso took that badly, as you might imagine, and hit out again in the Spanish press in the days after the event, saying, I didn't want to overtake him there. I'm not stupid and I don't like risking my life. If his name was Baumgartner, he would be crucified and he wouldn't be racing again. So, Mark, what did you make of this one? Uh, a bit of a mess anytime anyone tries to overtake in the tunnel, isn't it? Yeah, there's the incident itself and then there's its significance. And the, the misunderstanding between Ralph and Alonso arose partly because, unknown to Alonso, the Williams was without fourth gear. So Ralph was slow accelerating through that part of the speed range. Alonso mistook that for Ralph backing off to let him by, but he wasn't. He, he was just slow because he was the missing gear. So as Alonso gets alongside him, Ralph's beginning to get back up to speed as he, you know, overcomes that the gap and the, the the gears, and suddenly they're on a trajectory where two cars don't fit. Um, but this incident and the safety car it caused it absolutely changed the destiny of the race because on the one hand it destroyed Ferrari's plan to try and overcut past both Renaults. A plan that would probably have been doomed, actually, because Alonso had been quite heavily fueled. But on the other, with Alonso, this is up to the second stops. On the other hand, Alonso, now out of the equation, had allowed Ferrari to do something very different to Renault by staying out during the safety car with truly coming in to refuel. 
it gave Michael 17 laps. He had enough lap fuel for 17 laps to pull out what was needed for the pit stop, which was 17 seconds. So a second a lap. If they'd just followed truly in, they'd have just followed him out. This way, it was giving Michael another bite of the cherry. Could they have pulled out a second a lap on truly? Well, the difference in fuel load itself in between, you know, Michael on low fuel and truly on refuel would have been about six tenths in Michael's favour. So there's a free six tenths. But on old tyres, could he have found the extra four-tenths a lap for all those laps? Who knows? It's, it's Michael Schumacher versus Jarno Trulli, so maybe. But he was very much up for giving it a try when the safety car came in. There was more drama in the tunnel just a few laps later when Schumacher's Ferrari and Montoya's Williams collided behind the safety car. Ferrari left Schumacher out when the safety car was called, as Mark has explained, and it was a strategic gamble to see if he could make use of that extra fuel and pull away in clear air. But Montoya was behind him in the queue, a lap down, and they collided when Schumacher braked hard in the tunnel, trying to warm his tyres and brakes up. Montoya tried to dive to the right to avoid him, but they ended up making contact, which put, which put Schumacher out of the race. Montoya said if he was braking that hard, he should have done it in a different place, not in the middle of the tunnel. He just stood on the brakes, and you could see the left front locked for quite a while. As soon as I saw the smoke from the tyre, I straight away tried to avoid him, but there was nowhere to go. I'm not going to blame him, and I'm pretty happy I didn't do anything on purpose. I would put it down to a racing incident. Ferrari took issue with Montoya's use of the phrase racing incident there, given this happened behind the safety car. The clash was investigated, but no action was taken, which Schumacher accepted. But Schumacher said uh, afterwards when he was asked about this, the race leader was knocked out of the race after being hit by a backmarker. I'm sure there was no deliberate intention on his part, but it was a bit stupid of him. He added that Montoya shouldn't have been surprised by Michael hitting the brakes, as he'd done the same earlier in the lap. And that's a story that Trulli still recalls to this day. He said recently on the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast that he saw the cars almost collide at Mirabeau when Schumacher hit the brakes, and he'd already decided to hang back to leave some more space to them. And Trilly said, I was smiling in my helmet because I thought I called that and then it happened. Scott, where do you want to start with this bizarre collision in the tunnel behind the safety car? And could we put anyone predominantly at fault? Um, well, my first feeling is when I watch this back, I often think I'm genuinely surprised it doesn't happen more because uh, nowadays I quite like following uh, a couple of the front runners on uh, live on board during the Grand Prix and when they're behind the safety car or whatever and they're you know warming up the warming their tires and brakes and they're doing a lot of stop and starting especially when it gets really bunched together at the end of the lap I some I'm what I watch some people nowadays and think how are you not running into that other person because there's a lot of uh there's a lot of trust going on but it's very very easy to get caught out anyone who's ever been guilty of you know, sitting in a motorway traffic jam and just glancing down at your phone or being distracted by something knows how very quickly the car in front can suddenly end up right in front of you if you just uh, if you just lose attention slightly. But I'm inclined to agree with Montoya on this that it can be dismissed as something that ca that happens. And Ferrari can go jump in the harbour for all I care by contesting that this wasn't a racing incident as that's just so pedantic it happened in the race and it's one of those things it's perfectly fine to file this under racing incident um if, if, if you live in a world where you have to blame somebody um 
honestly, I, I'd, I'd rather blame Schumacher. The lockup is is really big, and I think I think going in the tunnel, I think it's just a bit. Uh, I think it's a slightly dumb place to do it, but I, I wouldn't blame either of them. I would just say probably inevitable, and you know, I totally get Trulli's point of view because as you know, Schumacher's arguing, I did that earlier in the lap. Um, well, you were probably asking for it then because if you if you do that often enough, right? Like you might get away with it. You are you're just it's just a risk. It's a risk you take. Every driver that does it knows that they are risking catching out the driver behind. And it happened here where there is very, very little room to actually uh um to get away with it, basically. And yeah, maybe he got away with it once and didn't get away with it the second time. It's it's one of those accidents that's extraordinary, but I'm genuinely quite surprised it's so extraordinary because sometimes when I see it, I often think, how does this not happen more? That incident put Trulli back in the lead of the race with more than 30 laps to go. And the race was tense all the way to the end with Button hunting the Renault down. But despite him putting pressure on Trulli, there was no way through. And it was the Italian who took his maiden win by just four tenths of a second at the flag. Speaking about the only win of his career on the Beyond the Grid podcast, Trulli said that once he got into the final stint and was leading with no more stops to make, he thought the toughest part is done. Now it's concentrate, focus, and don't make any mistakes. And talking about the pressure from Button, he said, You can't ignore him, but I was managing him. I knew I had a good car. The only thing I had to do was not make any mistakes. Even if he was slightly quicker than me, I only had to keep it cool and nothing else. Now, Mark, you've already talked about how good Trulli's qualifying performance was. How good was he on race day and how good was the whole weekend that he put together? Because... It's one thing to say, don't make any mistakes in the lead at Monaco. And sometimes it can be quite another thing to to achieve that. Yeah, I mean, his all-round performance, given the demands of that particular race, including qualifying, what you, what you have to do and how you have to build up a rhythm and get it to crescendo for the qualifying lap and then not make any mistakes and, you know, recognise the pressure moments when, when they come. Um, for him, one of the one of the key ones of those was at the build up to the first stops. He had Alonso right behind him, and he knew Alonso was fueled for an extra lap. So potentially, Alonso was in place to overcut ahead of him at the first stops. Um, so he was able to pull out the time over Alonso, over a driver as good as Alonso, as they're approaching the first stops. He was able to pull out a gap over Alonso. That, you know, Alonso couldn't go with him, and that created just enough for him to um, to to come out still in front. And actually, the the team had already, unknown to Yano, the team had already taken care of that by fueling Alonso longer to the sec to the first to the second stop um, because they they wanted to cover Schumacher with two cars. Um, so as it turned out, Yano was worrying about nothing, but he didn't know that at the time, and he actually delivered that big pressure. Um, Two or three laps to to buy himself that uh, that gap, um, and then yes, absolutely. After that, he just stayed calm. He absorbed the pressure. He did the the he called the he called the Michael Montoya uh, thing behind it in the safety car. So yeah, it was it was a perfect job. He did the perfect job for the in terms of the whole weekend. What was required to win that race, given that that the car that he had, he was perfect. Some more of Trulli's reflections on this race in his Beyond the Grid podcast interview were fascinating. So let's have a quick listen to one of the things he told Tom Clarkson. And make sure you check out this full episode because it's a great 
interview? I mean, I am the kind of person which uh, doesn't really live on the past. It's fantastic. Yes, fantastic to say I won Monaco and, you know, I did pole position. It's fantastic that people remember this. But I can tell you that I have had a better results or I drove even better in other races than, than Monaco with worse results. So Monaco stands out because of the excellence of the race, the important achievement. But I don't live on that. I, I live on the fact that uh, I, I tell you I, I was capable to drive the car even better in some other occasion. Jano said that after the race, Flavio Briatore told him it was a lucky win. And we'll save the story of how he ended up leaving Renault before the end of this season for another time. Mark, with what Jano said there, are you surprised that Monaco perhaps doesn't stand out for Trulli in the same way it does, I think, for everybody else who looks back on his career from the outside? And can you think of any of those drives that were better than this from the rest of his career? Yeah, I know what he means. It's, it's his career highlight, obviously, in terms of achievement. But yes, I can understand he doesn't consider it to be his best drive, not because he did anything wrong that weekend, but sometimes circumstances um, give you more headroom to do something extraordinary. And I would pick the 2009 Japanese Grand Prix where he finished second in the Toyota, lapping absolutely on the limit the whole time, challenging Vettel's Red Bull, beating Hamilton's McLaren in a Toyota that wasn't as good as either of those cars. And he felt that if he could have won Toyota this race, there might they might have reversed their decision to pull out of F1. And that's that he was driving with that thought in his head. And he drove out of his skin that day. And it was out, without doubt the best driver of his career. Monaco didn't demand quite the same from him. He had the fastest car in qualifying. He maximized it. He kept track position in the race, always in control. So a different set of demands. Not that there was anything lacking in that performance. It was perfect, as I said. But in Suzuka 2009, circumstances created the space for him to do something extraordinary. And he did. As for Button, second place was a good result and his fourth podium of the season from six races. He was angry with Toyota's Cristiano De Matta, though, who he said held him up for three and a half laps. Button said afterwards, I've never seen anything like it. They took a lap to get the blue flags out, but he had blue flags for two and a half laps. I'll be having a word afterwards because it's just not on. It was pathetic. BAR estimated that Button lost over six seconds behind De Matta, who got a drive-through penalty for holding him up. But Toyota were annoyed about that as they said Damata moved over as soon as he was finally shown a blue flag. Toyota's Mike Gascoigne called it appalling from the officials and said there seems to be one rule for those at the front and one rule for the rest of us. Now Scott, you've already outlined your own position on this and your own frustration at, at Jensen and BAR not being the ones that picked up the pieces for Ferrari when Ferrari slipped up. Would you do you think the team should have shared that frustration or given where they'd come from was another second place a good result internally? No, I think um, I think both Button and BAR would have uh, been frustrated because I mentioned earlier that they were the number two combo in two thousand and four, um, but that wasn't just about you know early results and it wasn't just about championship position. It was that they genuinely believed on paper that they were the second best team. And I think David Richards even talked about feeling like they belonged on the podium. So that was what they expected to achieve in, in Monaco. So when the only team you believe is better than you has an off day, you are obliged to beat them on paper. And regardless of whether F1 races are won on paper or not, very few are, that is the mindset you will have. 
And so if the result doesn't go the way you expect, it's, it's got to weigh on your mind. It's about the only scenario in which a second place in Monaco and for Button a joint career best result can be a disappointment. And the, and the other reason is that Button had missed the race the year before and he'd gone as far as saying pre-weekend that he wanted to win in Monaco more than he wanted to win the British Grand Prix. That's a, that's a big claim. For, for a British driver, it shows how sought after this victory was in the first place. And that would only have been heightened by Ferrari's absence from the front. And so I think it's inevitable that Button and BAR would have been really, really quite frustrated about this one. Let's move on to what was possibly the most mainstream news story from the weekend. And it certainly didn't involve anyone at the front. The Jaguars were racing in Monaco with a real diamond placed inside the nose cones of both cars. But the one on the front of Christian Kleen's car went missing after he crashed at the Lowe's hairpin on the opening lap. The diamond uh, that went missing was worth $300,000 and it's never been found. It's often been speculated that someone might have pinched it off the car behind the barrier during the race or that it came off when Kleen hit the tyre wall and could have even been embedded in the tyres. F1 itself recently did a special podcast about this story as part of its On The Edge series on Spotify. And in that, photographer James Moy revealed that he has shots of Clean approaching the barrier at Lowe's. Clean had hit one of the Jordans at Mirabeau, the previous corner, and Moy says he has unpublished photos that show the diamond was already missing from the damaged car before it got to the next corner and crashed out. The diamond was insured, but it wasn't covered in the event of being lost in an accident. But apparently the company that produced it weren't too upset in the end because of the level of coverage the story got after the event. And even the Ford executives in America were happy to see that reports in the US talked more about the missing diamond than who won the race. Jaguar's PR man at the time, Nav Sidhu, who was behind the idea in the first place, said he considered swiping one of the diamonds off the cars before the race to create a fake story about them being lost, but he said there was nothing intentional about the way it ended up happening. He also told that On The Edge podcast, you can't buy that level of publicity aligned to the world's most prestigious and glamorous sporting event. I believe with all the coverage, even to this day, we're now into tens of millions of pounds worth of coverage. Now, Mark, the, the F1 media pack at the time was, uh, it appears, was very sceptical that this story was even real. And I can't imagine it took up much of your time post-race. Did you, did you think it was maybe just a PR stunt to claim that a diamond had been lost? I never for one moment believed it was a real diamond. So whether it was lost, <laughs> whether it was lost or it wasn't lost was of absolutely zero interest to me. It was a piece of, you know crushed glass probably it was just a marketing gimmick i've no knowledge of that it's just my hunch which was just that it was a fake diamond in the first place that would explain why the uh why the diamond company wasn't too bothered that i will add that um their defense uh on on the accusations of it being fake was that it was too big a risk to a, a genuine uh company that produces diamonds to ever ever to come out that it was fake but i think mark has summed up there yes this might have got a lot of outside f1 external mainstream media coverage um, but I don't think too many people were that bothered or impressed inside the paddock but let's get back to talking about things that really matter we're going to finish this episode picking up on a little comment from David Coulthard that was made after the weekend he said this was a great day for F1 because you saw so much happening there was controversy which is always good some silliness and some accidents but thankfully all the drivers are okay and we've got a new winner 
So I'm going to ask you both about this, and we'll come to Mark first. As you were covering this season in full, you were at every race. 2004 doesn't go down as a classic season, but was DC right that this crazy weekend that produced a different winner and all these storylines and incidents, did that come at a good time for F1? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. DC practicing for his role as a, a pundit there while he was still racing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I can't disagree with him on that. It was it was just a great weekend and it was so there were stories coming from all over the place. It was, it was, it was, yeah. No, it was a nice weekend and something a bit different, and it had a, a lovely and deserved joy for for Yano, who you know was uh, a devastatingly quick driver, but it was perfectly conceivable that he was going to go through his whole career without ever winning a race, and it would that that would have been a shame. And so, yeah, the, it sort of got that monkey off his back, and he never won another one. But yeah, that that makes it all the more. Um, nice really that he that he did win this one what about you scott can you look past your uh your personal frustration that jensen button didn't win the race and see that overall this was a good weekend for f1 yeah as i said on the top of this podcast uh i i can now look back at it objectively and say this was uh you know this was this was the best result for f1 it came at a good time for for f1 so I agree with dc agree with mark um there, there's a bit. There's even a bit in the BBC's coverage of this race earlier in the first lap where Jonathan Legard goes to do a quick rundown of the order, and there's a brief pause. He says, "Out in front, it's Trulli from Alonso," and I like to think it's just Jonathan's brain automatically goes for Schumacher because it's 2004. So why wouldn't it? And the brief pause is him before, just before he says it, is him consciously thinking, "That's not right," and batting it away so that he can say, "Trulli." It's uh, so, so it's great for F1, especially DC's point that it was a new winner. Because, and I mentioned this earlier, at this point, it doesn't matter championship-wise. We're only a few races into the season, but it's already done. We're on our way to another 2002. I'm sure everyone suspects that. So it doesn't matter in terms of the title narrative whether when Schumacher doesn't win, it's Barrichello or Button or Montoya or Raikkonen or whoever. So all that matters is the race-by-race narrative uh, where the focus is 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 on specific events uh, when there's no doubt where the championship itself is heading in that case all you can ask for is a good grand prix and hopefully a different winner and that's exactly what monaco 2004 provided so it's undoubtedly a shot in the arm for f1 i'm sure that won't be our last episode about 2004 as even though we didn't get the classic title fight as uh, scott mentioned there there were plenty of interesting storylines bubbling away through the year But we'll leave it there for now. Remember to get your questions in for our series finale episodes using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or email BringBackV10s at the-race.com. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to leave us a five-star podcast review and you can submit a question there as well. Check out the Race Members Club if you're interested in getting early access to ad-free versions of new episodes. To find out more, head to the-race.com forward slash members club. Next time, we're heading back 10 years to revisit Nigel Mansell's memorable four-race cameo for Williams in 1994 and how he missed out on a drive with the team for the following season despite winning the final race of the year. 